Islamist groups that now rule in the Arab world go back as far as the American Revolution, and their complex history is full of clues for what is now in store for the Middle East. We'll hear the story from its beginnings from author and Arab affairs specialist Joseph Browdy. Islamism is an approach to politics based on an interpretation of Islamic teachings. It's a broad term that refers to political parties, social movements, and armed groups with differing views on democracy, women, and the use of violence. One place to begin the story of Islamism is the early 20th century, when the Ottoman Empire surrendered to European powers at the end of World War One. The defeat of the Ottoman Empire was a kind of epochal moment for Muslim history, because for the first time. The caliphate, which had previously been able to claim, for better or worse, a continuous history going back more than a millennium, was no longer in existence. Noah Feldman is a professor at Harvard Law School and author of *The Fall and Rise of the Islamic State*. He's referring to the sacred institution of the Muslim Caliph, the Prophet Muhammad's successor on earth. Which had always been occupied by someone claiming to rule an empire in the name of Islam, from the seventh century until 1924. It was literally abolished, and this caused many people in different parts of the Muslim world to ask themselves what went wrong. And one of the answers that some people sought was to say that the true values and beliefs of Islam had been abandoned. In 1928, a schoolteacher in Egypt named Hassan al-Banna founded a movement called the Muslim Brotherhood. He told his followers that the Quran promises victory to those who embrace it, and that Muslim societies had failed because they had been corrupted by Western culture. Banna called for a return to the pristine values of the Quran and traditions of the Prophet Muhammad. As secular Arab nationalism emerged as the ruling ideology in Egypt and Syria, Brotherhood activists declared that it was godless and therefore illegitimate, and that only the teachings of Islam would enable Muslims to succeed as a civilization. But making their case was not so easy at first. The Brotherhood had always been there, that is to say, for a century, they had been making their arguments, but they didn't gain a deep Popular support in the Arabic-speaking countries until the failures of the Arab nationalist governments began to become evident, and those became clear really in two ways. One is that those governments were unjust to their citizens and were perceived increasingly as domestically illegitimate. The other was that those dictatorial governments also didn't deliver on their promise of defeating Israel. And the bottom was 1948, and then 1967, when we lost to the enemies of Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala, the Jews. That's the voice of a Muslim Brotherhood preacher today, best-selling Kuwaiti author Tariq Suedan. Before 1967, there was a lot of Arab nationalism going on in the Muslim land. Turkish nationalism, etc. After '67, we woke up. War in the Middle East. Israeli forces drive spearheads across the Sinai Peninsula, west to the Suez Canal, south to the entrance of the Gulf of Aqaba, breaking the blockade, capturing the west bank of the Jordan River, and occupying the old city of Jerusalem. 
The Arab armies of Egypt and Syria that fought Israel in 1967 had been backed by the Soviet Union. In this Cold War chess game, Arab leaders who opposed the Soviets turned to Islamist parties for support. King Hussein of Jordan, for example, promoted Islamist groups as a counterweight to communist groups. That's Afshin Molavi, a Middle East specialist at the New America Foundation. Egyptian President Anwar Sadat did the same in his support of the Muslim Brotherhood to counter the power of leftist and Marxist groups in Egypt. Even the government of Israel tolerated and offered some tacit support for Islamist groups uh, in their battle against the more leftist, radical, Palestinian secular groups. All of those examples ended up biting those uh, governments who supported them. This was a classic example of blowback. The wealthiest Arab government to ally with Islamists was Saudi Arabia. Beginning in the early 1960s, the government of Saudi Arabia, awash in petrodollars, began funding Islamist groups all around the world. Saudi Arabia has a state form of Islam, which they call Salafism or Salafism, but which other Muslims call Wahhabism. That's Stephen Schwartz, director of the Center for Islamic Pluralism and author of The Two Faces of Islam. It aims to purify Islam of any ideas or practices foreign or otherwise, that the Saudi Wahhabis claim do not conform to Islam as it was practiced in 7th century Arabia in the time of the Prophet Muhammad. Saudi-backed Wahhabism is profoundly chauvinist and violent, and while it may have been useful to the Saudi royal family in keeping control of their people, uh, in keeping Soviet and other foreign influences out, and in keeping stability for the oil income, its effect on the Muslim community has been devastating. Both Wahhabis and the Muslim Brotherhood received Saudi funds to build mosques, schools, clinics, social services, and a publishing and media apparatus. Some Islamists also wished to train for violent conflict, and in the 1980s, a special opportunity arose for them to do so. Massive Soviet military forces have invaded the small, non-aligned, sovereign nation of Afghanistan, which had hitherto not been an occupied satellite of the Soviet, Soviet Union. That's U.S. President Jimmy Carter. The world simply cannot stand by and permit the Soviet Union to commit this act with impunity. Under the Reagan administration, American weapons met Saudi funds and Pakistani training in Afghanistan as part of an effort to drive back the Soviets. It was a magnet. It was a lodestar. It was an aspirational uh, point and meeting ground for many of today's ra most radical Islamists. The Soviets withdrew from Afghanistan and the Arab fighters found enormous meaning in their defeat. The perception was that by helping to bring down, to end the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan, they had helped bring down the Soviet Union altogether. Now, of course, that was a gross overstatement. Uh, the Soviet Union did not collapse just because of its occupation of Afghanistan. But that was possible as a perception, and it played an important role in the thinking of some of the most radical jihadi-oriented Islamists. 
Over the same period of time in nearby Iran, an altogether different Islamist movement managed to take power through homegrown revolution. The Iranian Revolution of 1979 and Ayatollah Khomeini had great designs for the entire Muslim world. They wanted to export their revolution. They wanted to see Islamist revolutions all across the region. Within minutes of the news being announced, the streets of Tehran were alive to the sound of cheering crowds and streams of cars with their headlights on and their horns blaring. Now two oil-rich countries representing the two great sects of Islam offered money and weapons to Islamist groups that shared their worldview the Sunni Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, and the Shiite Republic of Iran. Their support enabled the rise of armed Shiite movements like the Lebanese Hezbollah and armed Sunni movements like the Palestinian Hamas, not to mention Al-Qaeda. The images of 9-11 are seared into our national memory. Hijacked planes cutting through a cloudless September sky, the Twin Towers collapsing to the ground, black smoke billowing up from the Pentagon, the wreckage of Flight 93 in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. But while some Islamists have used violent tactics and called for a religious dictatorship, others have spread their ideas nonviolently, and some have formed the view that Islamism is compatible with democracy. Here is the voice of Kamal Hilbawi, a senior Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood cleric. Our aim should not be just controlling power. Our aim is reform. Our aim is bringing good to people. Our aim to show a model to the people. If you need good politics and clean politics, this is the way. Islam cannot be imposed on people. And Islamic State cannot start with the imposition or with dictatorship. It cannot, it would not be an Islamic state. And you cannot implement Sharia unless people are convinced and happy that Sharia should be applied on them. Egypt President Mubarak resigns. This is the scene live in Cairo's Tahrir Square. The hundreds of thousands of demonstrators hardly believing the news that they have been hoping for, waiting for, during 18 days of historic protest. Egypt's strongman President Hosni Mubarak, who's held on to power for almost 30 years, has finally resigned. When regimes collapsed last year in Tunisia, Egypt and Libya, some Western observers hoped that a wave of liberalism would transform the Arab world. Instead, Islamists swept elections in Tunisia and Egypt and appear poised to dominate the future of Libya, Yemen, and perhaps Syria. In those post-Arab Spring countries where Islamists have won the majority of seats in parliament, they are now actually on the hook. They are responsible. They no longer have the luxury of sniping from the outside. They now have to deliver the goods. They now have to deliver economic growth. They have to deliver jobs, and they have to deliver on the economic dignity aspirations of their people. And whether they can do that in a creative and effective way will set the future for whether Islamism has a future as a political movement in the Arabic-speaking world or whether it doesn't. If they do well, one can expect that other countries will follow in their footsteps. If they falter, one can expect that eventually the bloom will be off the rose, and as a political movement, Islamism will gradually begin to fade. 
Unless, of course, Islamists prove unwilling to submit to the democratic process. In Iran, a revolution that promised freedom from tyranny became an Islamist dictatorship. What course Islamists chart now will have long-term consequences for the societies they rule and for the world, however long they stay in power. <laughs>